0: Good to see you here as we continue talking about what the Lord is doing in our country, in our hearts, in our church, and using the quote that the founder of the Salvation Army had so many, many years ago at the turn of the 20th century as the dangers that confront us as we face how to present the gospel to a world that needs to hear it. Today we bring our series to an end as we've looked at the statements and seen how the Holy Spirit moves into our world and how the problems that we have are really because of the sin that we allow into our lives, but the hope that we have because of Jesus Christ. We began with the statement that one of the dangers we face is religion without the Holy Spirit because it is the Holy Spirit who draws us to the truth. It's the Holy Spirit who is the spirit of truth. It is the Holy Spirit who is the convictor of sin. And without the Holy Spirit going into the world and drawing us to the knowledge of who Jesus is and convicting us of the fact that, indeed, sin is part of our lives, we really don't understand the God we serve or what it's all about. But it would be a terrible thing if the Holy Spirit just came and convicted us of sin, and then nothing was there to remedy the fact that we were sinners. But we know that God has indeed provided a remedy, and that was when he sent Jesus Christ into the world. So Christianity without Christ can really not be Christianity at all because it is who Jesus is, the divine Son of God that makes it possible For our sins to be forgiven. It is His blood that was shed on the cross that takes away our sin and gives us the kind of righteousness that only God can give us because we could never earn it or be good enough. So as Jesus Christ is our Redeemer and Savior, the Holy Spirit begins to show us that we need Jesus Christ in our lives. And so forgiveness comes when we recognize we're sinners and repent of our sins. When the Holy Spirit shows us indeed we need to have that kind of godly sorrow that says, I have ruined my relationship with God. Sin has stepped into my life. I am a sinner. And because I'm a sinner, there's no way I could ever make myself acceptable in God's sight. But with the blood of Jesus Christ, and the admission that we're sinners, our sin is taken away, and we have right standing with God. And then we live a completely different life, because when we put ourselves into God's hands, we are born again, which means we are new people. We are different people. We belong to a different kingdom. We live by different rules. We're going a different way. We are the light of the world. And that regeneration that comes from the power of the Holy Spirit makes us stand out from the rest of the world because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. But we're not just saved so we can come to church and worship together and have a lot of nice friends and feel good about each other. We're called to make a difference in the world. We go into the world to show them that the government of Jesus Christ is the way to blessing. That we don't leave the world to just take care of itself and we're fine because we're in church. We're not of the world, but we are in the world. And the government of God, because God is the one who puts people in authority, rules the earth. And we need to be people who submit not only to the government of Jesus Christ, but extend that rule into our society so that everyone can be blessed. Because if we live according to God's rules, we will be blessed people. But up until now, everything that we've talked about and everything that the Holy Spirit is doing is to show us how we can be different people and how we can make a difference while we're here on this earth. But we're not called just to be different today and to make our lives count for while we're here on earth. There's a grander purpose And there's much more to the story than that little bit of time that we spend here on earth. And so today we come to that last statement, heaven without hell. Is that even possible or what does that mean? And really what we're looking at today is what happens when we die? Because we know that our time here on earth is a very short time period. If you look at all of history, and the thousands of years that we've been around, most of us are not on the planet for really a very long time. Uh, we have no idea how long our time is, but we know it's limited. We All of us know that we're going to die at some point. This is a universal truth. Death is part of our world. But what's amazing to me is how we know that we're going to die but for the most part, we don't really like to talk about it. That somehow, if we kind of ignore the whole topic, maybe it'll just go away. (laughs) But common sense tells it, we know that it's not going away, we know we're going to die, but it's amazing how many people really don't want to face that fact and figure out what in the world they're supposed to do. We all believe in heaven. If you look at the last Barna polls, they'll tell you over 74% of the country right now believes in heaven and believes in an afterlife. Of course, only 14% actually believe in hell. So we do have a group of people who know that there's got to be something beyond this life. There has to be more. Problem is, they really don't know what that is. So most of their answers are, well, I don't really know or I don't know how anybody could know because once you die, nobody comes back to actually tell you what they've done. And there's really no way to figure out who's right. Maybe we're all just going to be reborn and reincarnated and come back and keep doing it all over again until we get it right. Because we don't really know what right is, but we're going to keep doing it until we figure out what it is. Or we're all going to heaven because we're all good people. But is that the truth? And is that what's really going to happen? Because it seems the most important question that we ought to face, because we know we're all going to face it at some point, we are going to die. I would think you'd want to have the assurance of knowing what's really going to happen when that day comes? And is it possible to even have that kind of assurance and know what it's all about? See, when we look to the word of God, we know that because God is the creator of the heavens and earth, he has a plan. And his will goes forth in the the earth, and that plan is carried out because God's in charge of everything. Time was created when God created the earth. He set in motion what we know as time when Adam and Eve sinned and brought death into the world. But we did not just arrive on this planet by some evolutionary quirk of accident or chaos. We are part of a plan and a very definite plan because when God created the world, he had a plan in mind. And he didn't just create the world and set it into motion and then just sat back and say, well, let's see what they do with it now. He's involved in the world. He knows what's going on. As we said last week, he sets up rulers. He sets up authority. He's very much mindful of what we're doing and what we're all about. He knew that sin Would destroy us and he could have just left us to that destruction but he didn't he made a way he brought the Redeemer into the world and we are redeemed through Jesus Christ but this world is imperfect and God knows it and just as he created in the beginning the world the way he wanted it sin is not going to win out in the end we are moving towards a final purpose And God is going to restore all things when he returns to set everything right. See, there will be a climax. There will be an ending to time as we know it today. We're not sure when that time will be, but we know it's coming because Jesus said it was coming. Jesus Christ has always been the focal point of history. When he went to the cross, he changed everything. He made it possible for us to have a relationship with the Lord. And how do we know that's true? Because he conquered death. The grave couldn't hold him. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. What we're going to celebrate in just a, a few more weeks as Easter gets here is putting the truth to the statements that Jesus made of who he actually was because he did conquer death. He returned. But even that doesn't end the story. Because after he returned and was on earth for a while and they all recognized that he had come back, he didn't stay. He ascended up into heaven. And as he ascended up into heaven, he rules and reigns in the affairs of this earth to the day that he's coming back. Acts 1.9 tells us about that return. It says, after he or after Jesus said this, The same way he went up is the same way he's coming back. And so we know that the return of Jesus Christ is a fact. He said he was coming back. Every promise he made, he kept. And all the promises of God are true, so we know that Jesus Christ is at some point returning back to this earth. He is going to be at the right hand of God, the Bible says, until he puts all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that he is going to conquer is death. So in the plan and purposes of God, as God is moving through the centuries of time, Jesus Christ is active in this world. He's putting the enemies against him under his feet to the day when he finally conquers death and removes it completely from existence in this world. This was the hope of the resurrection. This was the blessed hope that everyone in the New Testament would talk about. And Paul would constantly remind them of his return and the idea that whatever was going on in this world, whatever suffering we have, whatever problems we may face, it's all going to be taken care of because it is a fact that Jesus Christ is going to return. In 1 Thessalonians 4, he says it this way in verse 16, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. See, the return of Jesus Christ is good news for those of us who are redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. Having Jesus Christ return to earth should make us all excited about the day that's gonna happen because it's a good thing. When he returns, death is gonna be conquered. He's gonna set up a new heaven and a new earth. Sin will no longer have reign in the earth what a difference that's going to make. And that helps us and comforts us, because we know no matter what problems we're facing now, there is an eventual day coming when these problems are not going to exist. And we have that hope when someone we love, someone we care about, does face death, that that's not the end. That's not the end of their existence we are going to see him again. We are going to be together for all of eternity because eternity is going to be a very long time. And what a reign of Jesus Christ that's going to be when we are together with him and sin has been removed from the picture. It's a great hope, but not a hope that's a wish. It's a hope built in the fact of who Jesus is and what he said it would do. He is coming back. He's coming back for his people, and he's coming back to set up a new way of living in a new heaven and a new earth. There's just one little problem in between, and that's before we get to the new heaven and earth, there's a judgment, and everybody goes to judgment. That's what he said. Now, judgment is one of those words that we really don't like to hear very much either because we've kind of become people who don't want to judge anything. Used to be pretty clear-cut what was right and wrong, but now we've sort of moved away from that to more of a situational thing and, you know, we just don't like to make these statements that are, you know, so cut and dry what's right, what's wrong, you know, who can really say that, and this is the way it is, and this is the way it isn't, and certainly we don't judge each other. In fact, I think everybody's favorite verse, whether they're Christians or not, is, judge not that you be not judged. All you have to do sometimes is tell somebody their behavior's wrong, and this is what they'll quote back to you. Don't judge, you have no right to judge. Judge not that you be not judged. But what's that mean? Because judgment's kind of in the Bible. See, all of us want a certain kind of Jesus. Most of us want a very loving Jesus. We love to talk about loving Jesus and how he loves us and and how we're just going to love everybody else. Or we want a very compassionate Jesus. And so we love to talk about the compassionate Jesus and how we're going to have compassion for everybody else. And of course we want a forgiving Jesus, especially when we need forgiveness and how he's gonna forgive us and then we should forgive everybody else. We want a healing Jesus when we're sick and, and so that we can be made better and he's supposed to heal everybody else. We have all these kind of Jesuses that we love to talk about and want until you get to a judging Jesus. And when you get to judgment, Everybody steps back. No, we don't want that kind of Jesus. You know, uh, I don't think he should actually tell us what to do. You know, the Holy Spirit should somehow just make us want to do things. And if we don't really want to do it, well then, do we really need to do it? I mean, after all, let's go, let's, we're under grace, not law. We don't need all those laws. Let's just let the Spirit guide us to all truth. The problem is it's hard to get through the Bible without seeing judgment in there because judgment comes all the time. It's a loving God and a loving Jesus that will judge us because only thing that makes sense is if there is truly justice in this world and that justice has to come at some point see a loving god has to judge sin if he doesn't judge sin he just lets it go unpunished then people that are sinners and people that have hurt others and let their sin run rampant get away with everything and we just instinctively know that's not right People that do bad things ought to be punished. And conversely, we think people that do good things ought to be rewarded. And so the whole concept that sin would not be addressed, that God would just let certain people get away with it, we know that's just not really right. The problem is in our determination of who's bad and who's good. You talk to some people now, They'll admit there's a hell, it's just there's very few people actually in it or will be in it at some point. I think really out of the entire 20th century, the only person going to hell is Hitler. Everybody talks about him, oh, people like Hitler should go to hell, but everybody else seems to be getting a pass, you know, he's like our standard of evil. That may be our standard, but that's not God's standard. And so we have to get back to the Word of God to see what is he talking about when he talks about judgment and the fact that there's a day of reckoning coming, and no matter how much we think we're going to escape it, we're simply not going to escape it. See, when you read through the Bible, you see lots of judgments. We're talking about the final judgment. That's not the only judgment that comes. God is always judging. And when you read through, you see when God has enough, God judges. He will allow us to go only so far, and then he's had enough. Uh, If you're a parent, you understand the concept. There are days when your kids have pushed you to the limit, and you've had enough. And when you've had enough, those kids know to watch out. They can push you just so far, but the day you've had enough is the day they better run for cover because you are gonna do something about it. Now, if we're that way, when we have enough, we're gonna do something about it. When God has enough, he's gonna do something about it as well. He had enough in the days of Noah, and he sent judgment to a world and only Noah and his family were spared. At the Tower of Babel, he had had enough of their affront and he changed all their languages. He had enough with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they were utterly destroyed. He had enough with Egypt oppressing God's people, and he judged that nation and destroyed so many people there. He used Assyria and Babylon to judge both Israel and Judah when he had had enough of their idolatry and their sin and then eventually judged Assyria and Babylon as well for their sins. He let Rome judge the Pharisees and the people of Jesus' day that were running things. And then of course eventually judge Rome himself. Because God, when he has enough, he brings judgment. And he brings judgment because he's not going to let sin rule in this world and destroy everything he's created. But sin is destructive. And he doesn't just send judgment to nations, he just sends judgment to people. He told Eli that his whole household would end, his future family would be ended, because of his failure to discipline and judge his own children. Much the same thing happened to King Saul. The kingdom was taken away from him in judgment because he failed to do what God told him to do. David was judged as well, though he had the eternal throne. Judgment came in the form of his children rising up against him. Ahab, many of the other kings were all judged. Their lines were cut off because God had had enough of what they were doing. The Jewish leaders that were opposed to Jesus were judged. The temple was destroyed. Their way of life was destroyed, and they were scattered through the world because God had had enough of their opposition. See, judgment does come. And you can't really read the Bible and think it's all about love, even in the New Testament. God will judge sin. And when he's had enough of it, judgment will come. He's very patient. He's very loving. He's very compassionate. He gives us much time but he also comes when he's had enough to judge us. But the Bible says that the day is coming when every knee is gonna bow and every tongue is gonna confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That does not mean that every single person is gonna be saved. It means that every single person is gonna recognize Jesus Christ is who indeed he said he was. And there's two ways that you can acknowledge who he is. You can come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ through saving grace and have the blood of Jesus Christ take away your sins and you will have right standing with God. Or you can wait till judgment day and find out that through judgment God really was in control. Judgment comes. There's a place to be. But judgment should not be something that scares us if we're in Jesus Christ. But it should be something that makes us aware that we're not just here to fool around. God has a plan and purpose, and that plan and purpose is going to happen. To to tell you what I mean, let's use a story in the Bible of someone who refused to recognize who God was until he was judged. And it was the judgment that woke him up. Because sometimes that's what we need to wake us up. And if we think that judgment won't come or that somehow we can do what we want, we can find out the hard way. God is in control. And he's going to do it his way, whether you like it or not. So it's easier just to accept that fact than it is to fight against God. Yet we spend so much time fighting against God, particularly when God doesn't appreciate the wisdom that we have. <laughs> but let's look to the book of Daniel. We talked a little bit about King Nebuchadnezzar last week, Well, let's look at him again this week. He was the great king of Babylon who conquered Judah, brought a lot of the exiles back, flattened the temple, destroyed the country, and at the time he was the greatest power on the earth. As we talked about last week, he had a dream of a great statue. The statue had a head of gold, it had uh, a chest of silver, and then as you moved down through the body it became brass on down to uh, iron and clay. And then eventually a great stone began to roll and smash the, smash the statue. When Daniel interpreted that dream for him because Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't tell anybody what the dream was, but God revealed it to Daniel and that's how Nebuchadnezzar knew in fact that Daniel was in tune with what God was doing, he said, this statue represents coming kingdoms. You're the head of gold, you're the great kingdom now, but your kingdom's not going to last. It's going to be replaced by another kingdom. And then that kingdom won't be as good as yours, but it's gonna get replaced too. In other words, what God is saying is, I'm in charge here. I decide who's gonna rule the nations. I decide what the government's gonna be. I decide what's gonna happen. And I want you to understand, you are ruling under my authority. While Nebuchadnezzar understood the interpretation it doesn't really seem that he liked the interpretation. Because very quickly you see him just kind of ignoring everything that Daniel said and deciding, wait a minute, I'm in charge here. I'm the ruler of this great nation. I'm the one who's conquered everybody. I'm the one that's done all the work. I'm the one that's in charge. I don't rule under anybody's authority. But my own. And so in the very next chapter, you find him building a statue. Chapter 3, verse 1 it says King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it on the plain of Duran, the province of Babylon. He then summoned in the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. He set up a statue that apparently looked just like the statue he had in his dream, with one big difference. This whole statue is gold. There's no silver in the middle. There's no brass at the bottom. There's no clay. The whole thing is gold. What does that tell you? He's not just the head of gold. He is gold. He is going to rule and reign forever. His kingdom is the most powerful kingdom there is, and nobody is going to tell him any different. See, King Nebuchadnezzar thought he could control his own future. He thought he could rise above God and he could be a God himself, that the determining dream he had had could be changed because The God up in heaven isn't the God in control. Nebuchadnezzar is the God who's in control. And he didn't think his power could ever be taken away. The word of God was just irrelevant to what he wanted to do. He wanted to have a kingdom where it was recognized who he was and it would last forever. No God was going to tell him any different. Nobody was going to replace him. He was the greatest king to ever live on the face of the earth. And so he set up a statue and fashioned God to be the kind of God he wanted God to be. And instead of accepting the truth about who God was, he fashioned God into his own ideas. That's the very basis of idolatry. But how much do we do that today when we talk about the determining foreknowledge of God? He has set a date when he's returning. He has set a date for judgment. He is going to rule and reign the earth. Yet we don't always like that. And so we respond much the same way King Nebuchadnezzar responded. I don't think that's right. I'm going to control my own future. I'm going to set up my own ideas of what's going to happen after I die. It's amazing. We have no clue what's going to happen after we die, but we just somehow it's going to all work out because of who we are. We're our own gods. We don't need God to tell us what to do. We figure it out. I know I'm good, and so therefore everything's going to be fine. We make our own little golden statues, and then we determine this is the way it's going to be. So you hear a lot today. There even books write, write about it. We even had a thing on Rob Bell's book. I love can win that when he said, I can't serve a God who would send people to hell. I just can't imagine a God being like that, that he would send anybody to hell. He made a little golden statue and said, this is the kind of God I want to serve. I want to serve a God who doesn't send people to hell. That's the way it's going to be. Okay. Other people say, there's no need of hell in the future because we got hell right now. I've been in hell. I know what it's like. And you can go through the earth and you can find a lot of places that really couldn't be a whole lot worse. And so we make our little golden statue and say, there is no future hell because we've got hell now. So we don't need another one. And we put that statue up. And then there's the people that, well, God is too loving. I don't think a loving God could send anybody to hell because uh, God wouldn't do that. So God is eventually going to save everybody. Even after they die, God has made a way for everybody to be saved. Universal salvation, I think that's the way. So we make our little golden statue, universal salvation. Because we can't fathom a God being different than the way he think he ought to be. God shouldn't be like that. God can't judge people like that. Who's God, again, we're back there. Who does God think he is? He always seems to think he's God doesn't recognize. Actually, we are. I will sit in judgment on God, thank you very much. He's not going to sit in judgment on me. I think God is not going to send everybody to hell. I think God is going to save everybody. I think there's reincarnation. I think after we die, we're just the end. It's all over. I think this. Okay, did you rise from the dead yet? Have you put anything behind what you're saying? Or is this just a bunch of fanciful ideas? Jesus Christ came back. He made the truth of who he was real. But we have all these ideas, these little golden statues of what we think God would be, and it's just idolatry when we don't even recognize it. We don't live just for today. There's a day of reckoning coming and God will judge. But just like Nebuchadnezzar, we want everybody to agree with us. See, when he set up that statue, it wasn't just enough that he set up the statue. He called everybody in, and he says, everybody's got to bow down to the statue. Everybody's got to get worship at this. Everybody's got to agree with me. Peter says this in the second chapter of, or it's the second book of Peter, second chapter. He says, in the last days, everybody's going to have an idea, false teaching of what God is like. And they're going to bring many people to agree with them. Because it's not just enough for us to have an idea. We want everybody to agree with us. And so they're going to agree with us whether they like it or not. A lot of people will be swayed. The problem is there's always somebody who won't agree with you. And this happened to Nebuchadnezzar. There were three guys. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they said, no, we're not bowing down that statue. Because they recognized who was really in charge. They said, you're not in charge. God's in charge. And so we're not bowing down. And when they said that to the king, we recognize you're not in charge. We know who's in charge. He didn't like it. Verse 13. It says, furious with rage... Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I've set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace." then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? You see the arrogance there? There's no God that can get past what I'm doing. i got a furnace here. and When I throw you in, you're dead. And you're going to see who's really in charge because I can take your life. And there's nobody going to rescue you when I give the order to put you to death. See, people against God always think that if they begin to persecute God's people, that somehow they can stop the message and they're going to win. But the problem is, if they're truly God's people, they're not afraid of death. And when you're up against people who are not afraid to die, you have no control over them. And that's what happened here. These three were not afraid to die. They didn't care if they died or not because they knew who was in charge and they knew where they were going after they died. And so Nebuchadnezzar had no control over them. And they told him that. He goes, our God can save us. We believe that, but that's not the issue whether he's going to save us. We don't care if he saves us or not. He's in charge. We belong to him. He'll take care of us. We don't care what you do to us. When you grasp that truth of the coming kingdom, nobody Can ever harm you. But if you live in fear of death, you'll be swayed by everything that comes along. If you're afraid to die, if you're not sure where you're going, if you're not sure of the truth of the resurrection, of what is happening after we die, then you're never going to stand up truly for the God that you serve. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they knew that God would take care of them. But so often we don't believe that. We're asked at work to do things that we know are against God, to, to teach things in schools, to do things at work, to do things that we know are against the word of God. But we don't stand up because we're afraid we'll lose a job. Or we're afraid of tomorrow. Who's going to take care if I lose my job? You know, what's going to happen? We're so afraid of what might happen because we truly don't believe that God will take care of us. But he's in charge, and he will take care of us even unto death. And so death holds no fear for us because we know he has provided a place for us. That concept infuriated Nebuchadnezzar. And he threw him into the furnace. It was so hot, the people who threw him in died. But then as they're watching him, watching him burn up, the strangest thing happened. They didn't burn up. And in fact, there was an extra guy in there. They threw in three, and then he looked and he goes, there's four. Where'd that guy come from? They'd met Jesus Christ. And finally, Nebuchadnezzar wakes up. He goes, take them out of the furnace. They're not burning up and he recognized the God that they served really did have some power. Verse 28, it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be cut into pieces, and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. For the second time, Nebuchadnezzar is given the information that there's a true God and he reigns. And for the second time, he's given the opportunity to actually bow his knee and confess that that God is in charge and reigns in the universe. And while he recognizes again that this God has some power, he's still not ready to submit to that power because he just can't give up control. He has to be the king in charge. And so he just changes really the way the Jews are allowed to worship. Nebuchadnezzar himself doesn't accept that as his God, But instead of persecuting the Jews, he'll now allow them to worship their own God. But he certainly doesn't require it of the rest of the country or really require it of himself. He still thinks he's going to be in control. He'll admit that there's a God above him, but now he doesn't think he's above God. He thinks he's a little more equal with God. So God comes a third time. This time he gives him another dream. This is a dream of a big tree that, that's just a magnificent tree and provides all kinds of problem or shade and everything everybody needs. And then suddenly it's cut down and it becomes nothing. And again, he's troubled by the dream, and again Daniel comes and explains the dream to him. This time Daniel's nervous because he recognizes this is not a good message. And he says to the king, You're the tree. You're the magnificent tree that is giving life to everybody right now, but you're about to be cut down. You're gonna be cut down and judged so that you will recognize who's really in charge. And so Daniel says, take this opportunity to repent, take this opportunity to acknowledge God, to to admit that God reigns in the universe and His his will is what's going forward. And for a year it seems He sort of absorbs that message. But then he's back to his own self. Chapter 4, verse 29. It says, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what's decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You lead grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. In a moment of time, he's reduced to insanity. He becomes like a beast in the field and for seven years he has completely lost control. For seven years he recognizes no matter what he tries to do, he's insane, he can't get it back until he recognizes who's in charge. You see, God had had enough of him and he sent a judgment. And in that judgment that reduced him to abject beast of the field, totally insane and out of his mind. God said, now, do you know who's really in charge? And this part of the book is actually written by Nebuchadnezzar as he finally admits, I'm not the one who's in charge of the world. There's a God in heaven, and I have to do it his way. Verse 34, it says, At the end of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, Because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. See, judgment showed him the true power of God. Judgment brought him to his senses, and he was able to recognize God is not only in control. God is just. God is fair. And what he does will be the right thing to do. And who are we to judge God? He judges us, not the other way around. God was in control since the beginning of creation, he's still in control today. And when he declares that he's returning and there is going to be a final judgment understand that is actually going to happen. And our ideas about it are completely irrelevant. It is going to happen the way God determines it's going to happen. And he is going to judge according to his way, not our way. And so it behooves us to go to the Word of God and find the truth that is there. Because God is not going to change Because of our whims and our likes and dislikes, he is who he is, and he has determined what the future is going to be. It's up to us to accept that future and be part of it. Sometime this week, read all of Matthew chapter 25, the great parables there, that talk about his return. He talks about foolish virgins who think that they have all the time in the world that nothing's ever going to change. The bridegroom's not coming. It's like people that are foolish today who think, I don't know, I don't have to face death. I don't really have to think about that. It's not going to happen for a while. I'm not dying today. Or Jesus isn't coming back today. Uh, I don't know if he's coming back at all in my lifetime or even whenever he comes. Well, we'll, we're, we'll deal with that when it happens. That's the foolish virgins. But what they found out, the door was closed and they didn't get in. And then he talks about foolish servants who think there's never going to be an accounting. That you can do anything you want in this life. That whatever gifts and talents God has blessed you with, it doesn't matter if you use them or not. Because, you know, it's all about what you want to do anyway. And, you know, I've got no time to work for the kingdom of God. And I don't think there's ever going to be an accounting. He says, you fool, I came and here's the account. And here's your answer. You're cast into outer darkness. And then he says to all the people, goats on this side, sheep on this side, come in, stay out. Based on what? How you treated people. Were you the light into the world that you needed to be? Or did it become all about you and self and the needy of the world you didn't care about? And in that statement, that chapter closes with this great statement, Matthew twenty-five, forty-six. They will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now let's leave that up there a minute. In all of the discussions about heaven and hell, that verse tells you everything you need to know. There is an eternal punishment and there is an eternal life. You're in one or the other. I don't think God would punish someone for eternity. Well, that's what it says. So take it up with God, not me. That's what it says. I don't want, you know, the worst time to find out what that verse means is at the final judgment. That's not the time to figure it out. You don't want to be standing there on the last judgment and have them go, you're with the goats. Sorry. Now, he sends judgment all the time. I mean, we're still going to be judged. judgments coming all the time. But there's a last judgment, and then that's the end. That's when he's had enough. That's, you don't want to find it out then. Better to submit now and understand there's nothing to be afraid of if you're in the hands of God. If Jesus Christ has taken away your sin, you are assured of your salvation, and death holds no fear for you. In all these parables, one of the most common threads is everyone that was lost was shocked. They couldn't believe they didn't get in. For all of their theories, for all their ideas, for all of the talk, they were shocked that they didn't get in. That's because there's only one way in, and that's through the blood of Jesus Christ. Can you have heaven without hell? Not at all. Because God is righteous, he's a righteous judge, and sin will be punished, and the righteous will be rewarded. But he gives us time, and he gives us days like today, where we can see his glory working. As we come to him and know that he answers our prayers and whatever our problems are, we can put them into his hands. Today we close as our healing service. We didn't have it last week because of baptism, but we have it today and I'm gonna ask the elders and ministers if they'll come and take their place at the altar. God loves us. He provides healing for us. He provides salvation for us. He can give us the assurance of what's going to happen when we die. And if you need healing or if you need assurance or whatever the issues you have, you can come this morning and have someone pray with you and know that judgment holds no fear for you if you've put yourself into the hands of God. Let's pray. Father... I thank you that this morning we can come and know that your Holy Spirit's presence here is indeed able to change our lives. You can heal us, you can save us, you can give us assurance, you can break every fear that we have of the future because we know you are in charge of the future and and nothing is gonna happen that you aren't aware of. So Lord, be with us this morning as we come. May the ministers and elders here be able be channels of blessing to your people, to bring the comfort, to bring the healing, to bring whatever is needed in our situations. We put ourselves into your hands and ask for your blessing upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd like someone to pray with you, just step out and come on down.